the human experience. Hello, I'm Professor Catherine Colborne, the head of the School of Humanities and Social Science at the University of Newcastle in Australia. Our school is dedicated to assisting our students to become critical thinkers, enabling them to appreciate and understand the world around them. Our researchers examine all facets of what it means to be human. We form partnerships with like-minded groups and researchers. This podcast series, The Human Experience, explores important questions about humanity, society and current events. Join us for thought-provoking conversations with our humanities and social science scholars who are helping to improve the human experience through their research. Hi, I'm Belinda Galbraith and today we are talking to forensic anthropologist and criminologist Xanthi Mallet. Xanthi, thanks so much for joining us today. It's going to be great to talk to you about all your very interesting work. Um, so crime is really present in our everyday lives through the endless media coverage that we see on the news and a really contemporary example of that is the hugely popular The Teacher's Pet podcast which speculates on the disappearance of Chris Dawson's wife, Lynn Dawson, in the 1980s. Xanthi, one of your research areas looks at the impact that news and social media can have on the outcome of trials. Given all the media attention that Chris Dawson's had, uh, if we end up going to trial, do you think he's going to get a fair trial? Well, that is a really interesting question. Um, I talked to my students about this just last week, actually, and got them to do a straw poll. Who knows who Chris Dawson is? Do you think he'd get a fair trial? And even if they hadn't listened to the podcast, they knew about it. You're talking 30 million downloads worldwide. So at that stage of saturation, can you really find a jury pool that's not going to be affected by what's been going on in the media and all the conversations about water cool, you know, around the water coolers, those moments? So I think it would be very difficult for Chris Dawson to get a fair trial, a fair jury trial. And I say that reluctantly because we know that the data on judge-only trials, which is the other option, you're much more likely to get an acquittal of all charges, say around 50%, than a jury trial where it's around 30%. So if I was his defence counsel, I would absolutely be pushing for judge-only on the grounds it's the only way to get a fair trial. So, and I'm reluctant to say that I think that may be the fairest course of action in this case, because he is innocent until proven otherwise. Mm, exactly. And when so many people know about it, it's just how are you going to find an impartial jury? Know about it and have an opinion on it. You know, so they've listened to a podcast that's an investigative podcast, but I did feel that it was very one-sided in its presentation. And I did wonder, listening to it, and I listened to all like 15 hours, I did wonder how other people were listening to it. Were they being really questioning or were they just accepting what they were being told? And Hedley Thomas clearly thinks that he's guilty and that did make me wonder what would happen if he was ever arrested and then shortly afterwards he was, so it's come to fruition. Mm. So do you think the podcast did um, prod the DPP into uh, prosecuting? Well, I do think that maybe the DPP may have been influenced. So people will say that the police were actually influenced into reinvestigating Lynn Dawson's disappearance. But actually the police had submitted their brief of evidence to the DPP in April of last year and the and the podcast didn't drop until May. So they weren't influenced. It was the third brief of evidence they'd actually submitted. The first two were rejected as not having you know, enough information to go forward to trial. So do I think the police were prodded? No. Do I think the DPP were? 
I actually do. Yeah, I, I wonder whether without the podcast, the decision would have been made to reject the brief of evidence again. And I do think there is a case to answer. And I think now we are going to get those answers, possibly as a result of the popularity of that podcast. Mm, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out. So in terms of podcasts like this, and you have TV shows that examine um, you know, murder cases and things like that, is it just infotainment or is it more than that? Well, I've been asked that quite a lot, actually, and I think it depends on the actual program. What is the purpose of the program? What is the agenda of the people making that program? Is it clickbait, you know, or is it has it got something more solid underneath it? And the example that I would give is a program that I actually worked on with Channel 7 last year called Murder Uncovered. And a case that I didn't, I wasn't involved with, but that they covered was a, a young man called Scott Ostick, who's currently in prison in WA. Now, he'd been found guilty a number of years ago of murdering his on-off girlfriend and he'd gone to prison however the program uncovered a significant amount of problems with that evidence evidence tampering by wa police uh, and that was all aired and since then he is actually getting a retrial for his case had they not shown that evidence on that program and not done that you know year-long investigation then he would have sat in prison for x number of years until he was um, eligible for parole so is it infotainment i think it can be can it have real-world implications and actually call the justice system, you know, into question and challenge and be some sort of, you know, gatekeeper for information and actually assist? Yes, I think it can. So it definitely has its place. Uh, the media coverage can have some benefits and it also can have some very negative ones too, obviously. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of your key interests, I believe, is working with women in the criminal justice system. So how do you see gender bias playing out in the courts these days? I think that's really interesting to watch as well. You look at any case where a mother is accused, especially of murdering their children, that's been a particular interest of mine, then there seems to be a real disparity between how she is judged compared to how a father would be judged. Um, and I've talked about Kelly Lane numerous times in the media and I've been working with Kelly and Kathleen Forbig and other individuals in that scenario for some years now. And what a number of people have said to me is, well, she should be in prison anyway because she gave her baby to the biological father, according to her story. And I go, step up a second, you know, let's look at what you're actually saying. If a biological father steps away from their child, that's fine. But if a mother does it, she should be in prison. So it's that real disparity between how we view motherhood and fatherhood. And I do think that plays out in court too. People have an expectation of mothers to be nurturing and caring. And when they break that mould, then, you know, people come down on them much harder than they do on fathers. Mm, so there's huge, huge expectations on that motherhood symbol that if you're not um, held, held up high enough to that and you're not achieving that, then... Um, look out the media is coming for you yeah and the public yeah there's this real almost hatred for women who don't want to have children you know if they have abortions or whatever they're kind of looked on as you know evil or whatever and it's i think it's really problematic when you're looking at a case where people are having to walk through that media pack and they've got these baby killer stories and it's like again how do you get a fair trial mm. under those circumstances exactly and you've written a, a book about it mothers who murder and infamous miscarriages of justice tell us a bit about um about the cases with kelly uh, lane and, and kathy folby what was it that interested you and what have you discovered along the way that i guess the public is maybe not aware of well, I actually came across the case of Lindy Chamberlain first, which is one of the reasons I wrote that book. So as part of my PhD work, I looked at 
evidential admissibility and when it can go wrong. And there were a number of sudden infant death cases that I looked at where experts are given evidence that was misinterpreted by them actually in court by one particular paediatrician and a number of women went to prison for murdering a number of their children. So it, reflections of the Kathleen Folby case. Then I got to Australia and I heard about Lindy Chamberlain's case, who is the ultimate miscarriage of justice poster child, isn't she? Then I came across Kathleen Fulbig and I thought, wow, the same rhetoric that was being used in the UK, you know, in the, you know, before Kathleen was prosecuted, was being used to prosecute women there. And this notion, um, this, this paediatrician, Sir Roy Meadow, came up with this idea that one child death is sad, two is uh, suspicious, and three is murder unless proven otherwise. Wow. And that was incredibly powerful and had an influence on a number of juries and women were found guilty if they had a number of children die. But what we also know is if you lose one child to sudden infant death, you actually can be predisposed to lose more for various reasons, genetic, environmental, whatever. And there's data in families such as Kathleen's to illustrate that, that losing multiple children is not unusual. It's certainly not unheard of. Mm. And so that played a part in Kathleen's trial. And I was thinking, have we not learned these lessons? You know, even though that happened in the UK with the other women, you know, we're in a global world now. Information is available. How is this happening here? Yeah. And so I wanted to start the book with with um, Lindy Chamberlain's case because I wanted people to have an open mind when they read the other chapters. Just because someone's in prison, does that necessarily mean they're guilty? Well, not necessarily. We know that miscarriages of justice happened. So then I did Kathleen's case. And Kelly's case also raised some big question marks for me. There's nobody, no witness, no evidence, no motive. Mm. Yet someone's in prison for murder. How has that happened? How does that happen when there is nobody in Kelly Lane's case? How does she end up being uh, imprisoned for, for murdering her child? Um, do you think the media did have a huge impact on that case? I think the bias in Kelly Lane's case happened actually well before you know the media pack descended on the trial in the decision made by the Department of Public Prosecutions in the first place. If we look at Nicholas Cowdery's comments last year in the Exposed documentary on Kelly Lane's case when he said that um, she wasn't a danger to the public in terms of harming any other babies, but she was a danger to all the virile young men out there. Now, if that played a part in his decision to prosecute her with nobody, contrasted against not prosecuting Chris Dawson, and he was also head of DPP at that time, nobody case, where are these decisions coming from and why is the DPP not answerable to anyone? They don't have to explain their decisions. So he obviously decided to prosecute Kelly Lane's case, even though you know, in that documentary, they said there was not enough evidence, you know, there were no witnesses, there was nothing. So by the time it got to court, I think it was already kind of heavily against her. Um, I'm not sure her defence counsel did the best job ever, but I think they were up against some serious crown heavyweights. And I think the whole process was just weighted against her. And you add in that baby killer mentality. And that's, we know, we end up with somebody in prison for murdering their own child with no evidence to support that. Mm. It's almost like the media and the public are calling for blood when you set it up like that and frame it that way, then um, it's really, you know, she hasn't got much hope, it sounded like. No, exactly. And I keep talking about this case in the media because I see my role at this point where we're waiting to see whether there's going to be some sort of review as really keeping it in the public's mind because if it goes back to retrial, what I want to see is an outcome based on the evidence that's presented at trial. People always ask me, do I think Kelly Lane's guilty? They say, it doesn't matter what I think. What I care about is that our justice system is transparent and equal and fair. 
and that if somebody's going to be in prison for murder, there has to be evidence for that. Because if it could happen to Kelly Lane, it can happen to any one of us. So I want to see her get a fair trial. And I think it's important to keep that in people's minds, that she deserves to be tried on the evidence presented in the courtroom, not what's happening with the media pack outside. So with the Kathleen Folby case, she was convicted of um, killing her four children, her young children. Do you think that there's medical evidence um, for for her case? And do you think that that's something that can come back to retrial? I do, actually. In each of the four children's deaths, so we had three infants and a toddler. So the three infants could be classed under sudden infant death because they were under a year old. But in each of those cases, there were medical conditions that pre-existed death that could have explained or at least exacerbated or led to death. And that was in each of those three. Now, the fourth child was what was actually the problem because she was a toddler. So she was outside the normal age range for a sudden infant death case. However, there was also medical evidence to support a likely cause of death in her situation too. So my concern with that is if each child in isolation had a medical cause that could help explain why they died, even though you've added those together... It doesn't mean that that equates to murder because we do know that losing one child can actually predispose you to lose another and that can actually become compounded over time. So it's certainly not a case that four deaths in one family is unheard of. There's documented examples of this that existed at the time she was prosecuted. And very, a very eminent forensic pathologist has come forward to say that the evidence does not support child harm at all. There was no marks on those children's bodies that indicated that anyone had intentionally harmed them and that she shouldn't be in prison based on the evidence as presented. So I do think it's an unsafe conviction. Mm -hmm. You've also been researching some of the behavioural patterns of sex offenders. Can you tell me a bit about some of the cases you've been looking at and what you've learned through that? When I first started looking at sex offender cases, it was actually trying to identify the offenders themselves, and then I became more involved with looking at the behaviour of of sex offenders. And I was under the impression when I started that all sex offenders are male. And whilst we believe the majority are male, I began to come across cases where females were involved, either directly, either taking the images or distributing them, or were involved in a situation where a male may have been accused of producing images and once they're found normally by accident on their phone or computer an adult female will step in and say that's not a juvenile that's me so they'll actually protect their adult partner by intervening in that process Mm. Um, so females can certainly be involved in this but they tend to get involved for different reasons i was i was um, looking at a case in the uk a few years ago where a woman worked at a childcare center and she was taking indecent images of children not for her own pleasure but to distribute and it was economical So you kind of break down some of these stereotypes of what you expect people to be doing. And my expectation was it's men for men. And actually, it's a much more dynamic and complicated picture than that. And women are certainly involved. How prevalent is is child sex abuse? Are we just at the tip of the iceberg here from what you're you're seeing? I think we are. It's a very covert activity. And one of the problems with it is people may not report ever or may take many years to report and they're so traumatised. Um, we've just seen Cardinal Pell be found guilty on five charges just you know in the last few days and those are historic cases and it took such courage for the victims in those cases to come forward um, and one of them was actually committed suicide a few years ago and never actually got to see this end result. So it is incredibly problematic because we really don't know how prevalent it is but we do know that there's far more of this going on than people believe before and certainly 
technology such as the internet has really allowed this to develop. It's allowed new mechanisms for child sex offenders to meet each other and have dialogue and also for distribution of the images um, and production of these images. And we have the dark web now, which we didn't have before. So I think there are so many more mechanisms for this to happen. Um, that we really are at the tip of the iceberg and, and we're fighting to kind of keep up with it and protect children as best we can but you know there's always that that kind of dark figure ahead of us kind of that we're chasing. Mm. And I believe you've done some research into hand identification mm. that's helped in solving some child sex abuse crimes. Can you yeah. tell me about that? Yeah so I was in the UK working at um, Dundee University in the Centre for Forensic Human Identification a few years ago and one of the police forces in the UK, the Metropolitan Police, the largest one in the UK in London, and they had this case that had been bouncing around for a little while and they didn't know what to do with it and it was a situation where they had an adult male hand interfering with a child and then they had a suspect but they didn't know whether he had created the images and was therefore offending himself or whether he was holding and distributing. Both are illegal, however the prosecution process is different, the charge is different. Fortunately for us he was highly freckled, he had ginger hair and the police gave us the original images plus comparative images of his hands mm -hmm. and we were able to map the freckle, freckle patterns on his hands, his knuckle creases and he also had a scar mm -hmm. and basically overlay them and there was nothing there that precluded it from being that person and you, you always start a forensic analysis on the assumption that they're not the same because of the assumption of innocence. So you look for anything that says it could not be this person. Yeah. And we didn't find anything, and there were several, several patterns and several features that were corresponding. But we didn't really know how that would go. It's the first time it had been done. Uh, the evidence was presented back to him, the report, and the officer said to him, it does look like your hand is like, yeah, and he said, is it? And he went, yeah, and changed wow. his plea to guilty. And what was amazing in that case was so he pled guilty and was found guilty on those charges. He was a sex tourist. He was traveling abroad to undertake this abuse in person, thought he was untouchable, you know, because he's only showing his hand, didn't have his face in it. But they then showed that on a documentary about unusual ways that cases were being solved. And when that was aired, two adult males were watching it and called the Metropolitan Police and said, he was actually my scoutmaster and was offending against me 20 years ago. They'd never told anyone. Mm. He was then investigated for those historic child sex abuse cases and found guilty. Wow. And so these cases you're working on, you never really know what the impact may be. Mm -hmm. And that's a great example. Those men never would have spoken. And then they see him on TV and they go, yeah, yeah. that's the guy. And we thought he had a history of about five years of sex tourism. He had a history going back 20 odd years. Mm -hmm. Fantastic work. Now, you've also got an Australian crew trial book coming out at the end of this year. Um, must be some really interesting, interesting cases in that book. Uh, can you tell me about some of those that you feature in the book? Yeah, so I'm looking at a number, some of which I've actually had a personal association with. So um, I've included the case of Carly Pierce-Stevenson and Candelise Pierce, who was a young woman whose body was found in Belangelo State Forest in 2010, and her toddler, Carl, um, Candelise Pierce, who was found in South Australia in 2015. So I've included that one because I was actually involved in a television series called Wanted on Channel 10. It was the first case I covered for that. And we were trying to get, at the time, uh, Carly's body identified in Belangelo. We were unsuccessful, but on when the baby was found, then um, a potential name was found through Crime Stoppers when her clothing was actually put out to the public. Mm -hmm. And she was identified through a Guthrie test. So they got a potential name from information from the public after it, an appeal was made. 
she was identified and then they say well okay we found the toddler where's the mother yeah and then they did a nationwide search against long-term unidentified deceased remains and found carly um, in uh, that matched so that was she was then identified and i then followed the case very closely and daniel holdham has recently been found guilty of both murders who was carly's kind of boyfriend on off boyfriend and he was found guilty of both murders, sentenced for both murders, um, just a few weeks ago, actually. So that's in there because I feel a kind of personal connection to that mm. case. I knew what had happened to her. I knew that both deaths were violent. And to see an end and that somebody was held to account was really powerful for me. So mm. there's some in that I know very well. And then there are others. Um, there may be a case, a, a chapter on Chris Dawson, but now he's been arrested. I'm not sure that's going in. Yeah. So we'll wait and see, see when there's. Yeah, out. yeah. You mentioned that the Beaumont children are in the book. They are. Yeah. Again, another one that I investigated with Channel Seven um, for the Murder Uncovered series earlier in 2018, and I was there when we actually looked. You know, we dug for the for the Beaumont children. So I spent about a year investigating that case, looking at a potential suspect. And so they're in there as well, because I haven't given up hope that Mm. we'll find them actually one day and give the parents closure. Mm. Um, They're still alive. And even though every time you cover a case, people will say you're re-traumatizing the family. And that is a risk, you know, every time it comes back into the media. But after the dig that we did last January, early February down in in, um, South Australia last year, the father actually reached out to us and said, thank you for looking because mm. he hasn't given up hope that one day he'll know what happened yeah. and that was really important to me that we're not just it's not just infotainment mm. we we generally want to give the family and also the community closure and wherever those children are they deserve to have a decent burial yeah. so yeah it's um yeah those cases are kind of yeah personal to me mm, definitely and Ivan Malat notorious Ivan is in in the book as well Ivan's in there yeah on famous cases now it is a cold case book however Ivan's in there because there are a number of other cases that remain unsolved that may be attributable to Ivan um, there's one young man called Peter Letcher who who I do believe is one of Ivan's victims um, the police believe he's also one of Ivan's victims mm. so he hasn't been found guilty for that he hasn't been prosecuted because that information came out during the original prosecutions they didn't muddy those waters but I do think that he is and I would like to see him prosecuted again to give the family closure because Mm -hmm. they may think they know who did it but it's never been heard in court no one has ever been held to account it won't affect Ivan's sentence but it doesn't matter. I think the, the family need these answers. Well, what were the circumstances around his disappearance? So he was also travelling, disappeared, but he disappeared um, north and was found um, in a different kind of area. But again, bushland that Ivan had associations with that would have known. He even took his girlfriend there. So not in Belangelo, but a similar kind of environment. And he was the right kind of victim type. Um, so yes, we do we do think that he is one of the the Ivan Malat victims. Mm. It all sounds very very interesting, and I look forward to reading your book when it does come out. Yeah, later this year, hopefully. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So thank you very much. It does sound sound like your research is definitely having some real world impact out there, and um, hopefully some closure can be brought to some of those families that you are dealing with. So thanks very much, Xanthi. Thank you. Thank you.